Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show, we have Esben Fris Jensen, co-founder and chief growth officer at Userflow. In this episode, we talked about Esben's experience building out the sales team at Cobalt and how they kicked their sales motion off the ground, what triggered the need for customer success three years in, and what the benefits are of having sales incentives as a customer success manager. We also discussed how customer video interviews keep the Cobalt team on the same page when it comes to their ideal customer profile, why product-led growth led Esben to join Userflow, and we dove into how being late into the market helped differentiate Userflow from its competition. As usual, I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode, and if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. With a browser extension and web app, Avrio provides a new way to capture and share data analysis, user research, and learnings directly in context with your team. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads, to inside of apps and team members' heads, Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. This is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael, and here's today's episode. Hey, Espen, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to have you. For the listeners, Espen is the co-founder and chief growth officer at Userflow, the fastest way to fast user onboarding for modern SaaS businesses. Prior to Userflow, Espen was the co-founder and chief customer officer at Cobalt.io, where he still serves as an advisor. So my first question for you, Espen, is how did you go from founding a business enabling companies to run on-demand penetration testing and vulnerability assessments to founding a company now aiding user onboarding? Yeah, I think a very good question, by the way. Cobalt, actually, when we started Cobalt, and that was eight years ago, I actually didn't come from the security industry. So I had no prior security knowledge. So even when we started Cobalt, I came from outside of the industry and and looked in and that actually brought a lot of benefits. The entire founding team at Cobalt actually didn't come from the security industry. And I think because of that, we were able to look at it with a new perspective, which was pretty interesting. And then as Cobalt grew, we we built a a big organization and, and we can talk more about that, both with sales, CS and all this kind of stuff. And over time, we started also looking at this big trend called product-led growth, which I found super interesting. And we started moving more and more towards product-led growth at Cobalt. And then I had a friend who was actually building a a startup in that space. And he had asked me if I wanted to join him. And uh, in the end, I found it so interesting, the space that I I ended up uh, saying yes to him, even though it was a really hard decision uh, to leave my operational role at, at Cobalt. But Cobalt had also grown into now almost a 200 people company, so a very different company. And I wanted to go back to, to the early stage roots of building a company. So it was a bit of a mix of wanting to, to go back and also this really interesting, interesting. product-led growth space. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think definitely as well for a lot of founders that get to this point in time in their company's stage of growth, when they realize like, this is maybe not what I enjoy much that more. I like the early stage. I like a little bit of the chaos, but still the building phase. And I'm interested to chat about that today a little bit in depth, like your experience through Cobalt. You joined, you said it's over 200 people now. Early days as well, we were chatting just before the show that uh, you actually got started out in sales and setting up that motion and then went on to realize, okay, now it's time for customer success and let's get that set up and eventually evolving in then to the uh, chief customer officer role, like uh, spanning across different teams and operations. But I want to go back to the early days and I know maybe a lot of listeners as well looking to get up their first sales team or potentially even then their first success team and just talk through the different stages of growth, like when you started operalization, geez, that's a a bad way of saying it, operalizationize these things. And let's go back like early days, like when did you first get started like setting up the sales team? What did it look like? What is the point in time when you say, okay, like we need sales now, let's get a little bit more organized and get structured. I actually, so, so uh, I think we've always been very operationally strong at Cobalt. So by the way, just to give a bit of pre-story, we were four uh, Danish uh, co-founders who started the company back in 2013. We started the company in the US, even though we're all from Denmark, and we went through an accelerator program uh, called Boost VC, and then we decided to stay around and raise capital here. And actually, already from the very early days, we were doing sales. And I think it was also because we had a bit of the capacity being four co-founders we were we had the capacity somebody could do product somebody could do like more operational stuff and somebody could do uh, focus on the sales part so even in within the founding team we had we had a sales motion and it was primarily me doing that so i was both the bdr and the ae and the customer success manager in the early days um, so a lot, <laughs> a lot of fun but i think being that also taught me a lot that i could take with me that we could then use when we started hiring and building out these functions. Yep. So I think within within the first year or so, it was more or less just the, the co-founders maybe with support from some interns here and there. But then over time, we we built out a, a small sales team. Initially, it was BDR or SDR, as we called it uh, back then, and then an account executive that we basically brought in to help us do do the sales, but we were still leading it as the founders, uh, even though none of us had actually any prior sales experience, but we were looking at all the best practices, especially from Salesforce. Salesforce has been driving with the predictable revenue uh, book uh, by Unrust. That was the Bible. That was the Bible back then. And we did a lot of those things, basically building out a, a very kind of SDR to AE driven kind of model yeah they definitely pioneered salesforce like the motion and like sales and customer success both i think when it comes to the software space it's also very interesting as well like i think one thing you pointed out is it was the founders getting started with sales and i think this is what you hear a lot of sales leaders and like experienced sales leaders say is that to begin with don't go out and hire your first salesperson the first salesperson should be you either the ceo or the founder because it really helps you to understand okay what works what doesn't what sells the knowledge you get from it as well like feedback that gets looped back into the product then those cycles can be so much faster having yourself you got started then like lucky fortunate position four of you so you had the freedom flexibility to give this focus and time yourself at what point then like how big was the business at what point did you decide okay now we actually need to start hiring let's bring on our first sales rep 
So that was within that first year. I think within the first year, in the end of the first year of the business, uh, we hired uh, our first sales reps. And initially it was just one, it was basically one BDR and one, one, and then we built the team from there. And, and talk us through as well. So the BDR and AE, like the responsibilities, what were they to begin with? What was the level of experience that you brought them in with? Uh, were they more juniors? Were they seniors? Like, how did you go about deciding yeah. who to hire in the beginning and which were going to be the right roles to begin with? So I think uh, given that uh, Cobalt was, I think we were coming from Denmark, right? We had no brand, anything. We didn't know anybody. Yeah. Uh, and then you you cannot go out and find these really strong super profiles that just, oh yeah, I want to join these four Danish guys. I never heard about them before. Let me yeah. join them. So we didn't really have that capability, which I think now as a second time founder, I think that is actually a possibility I have uh, given my network and so on. But back then we we were... We could hire who we could find. And that was, we were lucky to find some more, maybe more younger, uh, kind of hungry salespeople who were looking to to make a move in their career. Maybe they had been a BDR at another company. That's actually what we did with AE. That person had been a BDR at another company, but was looking for that AE opportunity. And the BDR that we hired had been at a company where they were doing more kind of sales to really small businesses, mom and pop shops, that kind of stuff, and wanted to move into the the more kind of classical B2B, uh, a bit higher up the market, selling to software businesses. And so I think we found somebody who was hungry to move to a next level and therefore was willing to join a company at our uh, stage. stage. Um, yeah. Yeah. And just as well for clarity, is like in terms of the BDR, you talking about business developer and representative, yeah. like their yeah. function, then you were operating more on an outbound sales model. So they would go out and yeah. find to like source leads, bring those in. Yeah. And it, it was very outbound. And we can talk more about how it is at Userflow today because yeah. both Cobalt has changed into a much more inbound engine as we grew and built a strong brand but also today with userflow that's where we're starting we're really focused a lot on inbound, on inbound. really and 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 this yeah. really product-led model so it's very different yeah i think we'll talk, touch on that as well but i think the product-led model itself it's it's really important to understand the type of business as well the type of customers and to understand what works and uh, like you said yeah. like something like cobalt in the beginning you really needed to get the sales motion going so you could then get the product-led motion i personally don't think yeah. you need to have one or the other i think they need to work uh, together in tangent and it just figures like which time is, is right for your business you had your business development representatives like they're the ones sourcing leads accounts executives like what was their role then their function in the early days was it to look after existing leads was it to uh, expand existing accounts what were you focused on there. So initially an AE or account executive had to do also do meeting sourcing. So similar to the BDR. So yeah. they both did that, but then also do the actual meetings. So selling the product, do demos and so on together with the founders. And then the actual, back then we didn't have customer success. So the actual delivery was actually in the early days, a bit more product led, but also, also we had one founder focused on operations. We called it back then. So, so we didn't actually have customer success. We had sales and then operations yes. at that point in time. Okay. Yeah. And then just talk us through like, how did the sales team then evolve? So you started out initially two people after year one, uh, and it yeah. might be pushing your memory here a bit, but how did yeah. you then start yeah. to scale the team out? What size did it get to when you got to the point you say, hold on, maybe we need to get customer success involved as well. 
Yeah, so I think we hired for customer success in 2016. So that was yeah about three years after we have started the business. And until then, you can say it was pretty much the founders uh, doing that from an, an operations perspective, which is called it operations. But the sales team as such grew in, in a very kind of organic way. We hired more BDRs to source meetings because we were seeing that Back then, and I don't think it's actually working that great anymore, but back then at least it's a, it was a, a great way to get meetings, to do email campaigns, to do LinkedIn and all this stuff. And we saw that was working. So we hired more BDRs. We made a good partnership with a company that actually sources BDRs and, and trains them. Uh, and then we hired those. And then we also built out, we hired a couple of AEs, but we... I think the ratio back then was like four PDRs and then three A's or something like that. Yeah. And then when I started, so, yeah. so we had a sales team of 10 people or so when I moved on into, into focusing on, on building customer success. And we, we decided to hire a, a VP of sales uh, to further scale the sales organization. Very nice. And then, so it got to this point, 10 sales reps or BDRs are used together three years into the company. What was the trigger that said, okay, like we need customer success now? What drove that decision to got, get it set up besides obviously freeing up the founders uh, from the operations uh, roles, as you call it? Yeah. I think a big change was actually in 2015, we moved from a, we had a more transactional model back then, and we moved to a subscription model in 2015. And as part of that, it came natural to also have customer success because suddenly you were, you had the concept of renewals, right? We moved to an annual subscription model. You, you wanted to have those customers renew and you knew you could see that we needed a bit more than just operations. Operations was very focused on the actual kind of pen test delivery, but we wanted to have something that were also understanding, does the customer like our product? Is there anything we can do better? How can we uh, get them to um, do even more pen testing and things like that? So that that kind of drove the need for, for the customer success function. Cool. And, and I got the responsibility to then build that. Um, to build that. So let's also just get a little bit of context then in terms of this, the scale of the team. So three years in, 10 teams strong in sales. What did the rest of the yeah. company look like? How big was the company at that stage? We, we were probably 20 around that stage, I would say, 20. Uh, something like that. Okay, um, so you yeah. had a, a quite yeah. a big sales team in comparison to the size of the company yeah. sales was a big part of big what part. we did but we had operations then we had engineering uh, and and so forth we didn't yeah. have product but we had engineering so engineering was also doing the product part cool um i think as an early founders early stage founders are very focused on building a strong product and we were as well so you yeah. can say the first two years or so we just built you know you product yeah. and then you you, you set like a really strong foundation and we actually realized the product we were and that's another thing we can talk about uh, because the market we were going into were dominated by consultancies where there was no software product uh, in the delivery so yeah. just by having a product that was a big differentiator so in that sense we saw that okay we already have a super strong baseline product let's focus on the sales part because we need to distribute it we need to get it out to more people and yeah. really spread the, 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 the word. word. Nice. And then, so three years in, 20 people now on the team, you start hiring for customer success. What were you looking for in the skill sets from those first few hires yourself? How many people did you hire? 
So we just hired one uh, person, uh, and actually that person was an account executive at another company, Uh, not even a customer success manager. So again, we hired somebody, I think, who was hungry to move into customer success, who had an interest. He he had been uh, doing sales for a long time, and now he really liked the customer relationship uh, a lot more and wanted to move into that. So we hired him. And and then I think because of his background and my background, it became a a very sales kind of sales savvy customer success team. We were able to, we had a strong focus on both renewals, uh, selling renewals and also selling expansion. So you can think of it, I think some people would likely more call it account managers, but that's how we built the team. So a good mix. Yeah. And do you think there, like, what did you say is the positives and negatives or something like that? Because I think typically in customer success as well, there's always this, should you draw the line uh, between the relationship you develop with your customer being purely about their success or the, once you start to bring in like the discussion of monetary, others on the table will say, okay, like success, it's your job to expand customers, to increase net retention. And this is what you need to be doing. So like, where do you sit as well now, having had the experience, like coming from sales to success, like, how do you see it? So I, I think we, we made the right choice, actually. And I still think that's a big part of the customer success culture today at Cobalt. Yeah. I don't, I'm not a strong believer in the fact that you cannot support a customer and have a sales incentive. I actually think you sometimes do even better support if you have a sales incentive as a customer success manager. Yeah. yeah. So I think that is still a very strong part of of our customer success today Um, it's definitely interesting because i I think about it from my own experience like working with different providers and it always does feel a bit weird when even though you're trying to avoid this awkwardness created between having a sales function within success it's almost more weird to spend the whole year talking to one representative one customer success manager and then it towards the end of the year, get passed on or get pushed onto calls with salespeople that you have no relationship yep. with that come around once a year to try and close the deal. And you're trying to maybe avoid and protect the relationship the CSM has, but you end up creating like this bad, weird void that you have with your company and your customers. I probably really lean as well more towards uh, having that motion embedded in I, one. I also think there I also think there's something else uh, and that's always like how complex is your product? Product complexity matters a lot in that split where I say Cobalt was not complex enough to justify having separate people focus on one person would know enough and then you can always bring in the odd situation that you needed something really special. You could bring in somebody a, a bit more technical. Cool. Yeah. So you hired one person then. Let's fast forward a little bit. Like, How did the team scale from there? How did it grow? What were some of the skills you were bringing into the team? So within one year, one and a half year, I think we hired uh, three or four additional CSMs. Again, very similar profiles, basically somebody who had a bit of both customer success mindset, but also sales mindset. And yeah, so we basically scaled with CSMs and that was like a natural scaling based on number of customers and revenue. So it happened naturally when we reached capacity of one CSM. Let's yeah. say they at max could handle $2 million. We needed more. And then this was like yeah. somewhere around year four and a half, I think like 20, halfway through 2017, 2018, if the maths is right. Yeah. How big was the team then once you had got to about four people? Oh, that's a good question. So the way we've grown at Cobalt was, I think in 2018, we were yeah around 30, 30-ish uh, 
40 people and then we grew like we doubled every year so it's, uh, we were 50 in 2019 50 16 2019 and uh, now 120 in, in 2020 and then now yeah going towards the 200 here in 2021 so so something along, around those numbers crazy and then yeah. so four and a half like four people starting to scale things like you mentioned as well then at some point you transitioned into this chief customer uh, officer yeah. role at what point yeah. was the team at then like how uh, big was it why did you feel the need to make that transition? they were they were i think five people five six people i as a founder you, you always have to reinvent yourself when something i think my strength has always been take things from zero to one and then hand it over to somebody else. And so what I did was I did that with sales and now the same with customer success. And then there were other challenges in the business that I needed to look at. And one of them being like this whole kind of customer understanding across product, across uh, sales, across customer success. So that was uh, the role I've moved into while also taking on other operational kind of responsibilities. So yeah, around 2019, that's when I transitioned uh, yeah. and we, we hired a, a VP of customer success who, who has really been able to, to scale the team even further and, and really professionalize the function. So that's also what we see. We've done the same with sales, right? We the founders took it from zero to one and and then the, the we hire some a, a really strong vp who can come in and, and yeah. further professionalize playbook nice yeah. and then talk us through a little bit about this role chief customer officer like really trying to understand the customer and all the different touch points the silos that exist within the organization what were your yeah. like main day-to-day -day functions what were you focused on like how are you bringing together all this information yeah, I think for me, it was always a mix between some operational role and that, and then that role. And I think that was good because then I was still in touch with the operational part of the business. And so after customer success, I actually moved into looking at the operations piece, so the actual managing of our pen testers to so the other side of the table. And then I also moved into enterprise sales, which was an area we were still starting off with, taking yeah. from zero to one. And uh, so still operationally involved uh, in many ways, uh, but the, the chief customer role, I think was a great way to kind of uh, take all my experience. So I, because I had done so many things in sales and customer success and really understood our customer and, and knew like almost all our customers um, very closely, right. And understood their needs. I could take that and bring that to the rest of the organization. And especially maybe the part of the organization that are not on a day-to-day -day basis close to the customers, product, engineering, sales even. You can say sales is, yeah, they're close to the customers, but they hand it off at some point and then they might not know what actually happens after that. So it's good for them to know what are actually the value the customer gets after they, they are sold. So that has been my role of, of spreading that information, building, for instance, I build a lot of like customer um, journey overview. I built a segment overview. I, I did in the end of my time at, at Cobalt, I started doing these sessions when especially new salespeople were starting explaining who our customers are, who's our ideal customer profile. Yeah, so basically building elements like both documentation and also just doing meetings to spread the knowledge about who are our customers so we could build better stuff and support them better. Yeah. And that's a really interesting point as well. So I think the, the one aspect of it is obviously doing the research, doing the work, but I think the most important aspect is like, how do people actually find out about it? Like you say, 
uh, organizing meetings, distributing yeah. information. What did you find in your time to be most effective to make sure that the team was on the same page, had a good understanding of uh, who the ideal customer profile was at any given time? What did you find worked really well? Yeah. It, it's a mix of building like a, so I had a slideshow where like on a high level presented who is our ideal customer profile. But really what I find the most effective, especially when communicating to product teams, is video interviews. Like they want to hear it from the mouth of the customers. They don't want to hear it. As soon as it goes through somebody in your company, it loses value. Actually, it loses effect. Yeah. Uh, so the more direct you can make it, the better. So that was something I found very effective uh, in communicating our customers' needs to especially product. I started doing recorded interviews, even like where they were, the customers were screen sharing how they were using our product, what they were doing, what are the challenges they were having uh, and stuff like that. So I think that is a very effective communication method. Nice. And how, obviously things change all the time. You're moving fast, you're growing quickly. Information's going out of date as well. Things are yeah. changing and moving. How are you keeping the team up to date with these changes then? How are you making sure that people are working off the right information? Yeah, I think, so the funny thing is things don't change that fast, <laughs> to be honest. Um, customers, yeah. I, I would almost say Cobalt customers have the same needs uh, now that they had in 2016. Or, and so yeah. it hasn't changed that much. There are, of course, some new trends, but in general, industries don't move that fast. You can take a thing like agile development, even though a lot of people talk about agile development and you could say, okay, we, we should adjust our testing to really fit with that. Cobalt has already come a a long way. We do uh, 24-hour on-demand pen testing, right? Which is unheard of in the industry. But yeah. you can say in a very agile model, you should be able to start a pen test in you know, one minute. But reality is most customers are not, uh, I would say like 99% of customers are not ready for that or are even looking for that. So I think actually Cobol has been driving more than the customers are looking for. So that, that's a good thing in my view. Very cool. All right, let's quickly, because I see we're running up on time. We've been going into this quite a bit. Uh, <laughs> talk us through a little bit about your new company now. Why did you yeah. start it? Why have you decided to join? Obviously, you mentioned the product-led growth side being one of it, but what do you see as being the main value and what excites you about it? So uh, product-led growth is this big trend right now. Uh, and I think what has happened is you see a lot of these companies like Datadog, Sendesk, uh, Zoom, uh, who are very product-led going public and they have amazing numbers and, and then companies are starting to look at that and say, okay, that's that's awesome. I would say when we started Cobalt back in the days, we were actually more product-led. We had sales sign-up and all that stuff. Then we moved to this more schedule a demo kind of model. And I think it was because, and that's also a, a caveat in, in product-led growth, we were educating a market. We were educating a market moving from service industry into a SaaS kind of thinking model yeah. and that required salespeople to explain and educate the market in the beginning. I think now Cobalt is at a stage where we have educated the market to a large extent. There's still some way to go, but it's at least more educated and people are more used to these kind of software driven models. And, and therefore we decided in Cobalt to, for our smaller segments, to move to a more product-led model. Uh, so we're going to look at we're still on that journey uh, inside Cobalt. But that I just found super interesting. I've always been a big product kind of guy by heart, really like always been the one, <laughs> you know, creating all the new product ideas from customers who says all that stuff, really love the product. And I, I really found it interesting. How can you, how can you have the product be the onboarding, product be the 
the retention mechanism, product beta, all these things. So I saw the challenges um, because it's not an easy thing uh, that Cobalt were having in actually moving from uh, having gone through this very sales-led, customer success-led approach, which is actually great. It, it brought us to where Cobalt is today and it's still great. But transitioning to being a bit more product-led it is a big challenge and, and a lot of companies are facing that challenge. And then I like that, right? I like these kind of challenges. How do we solve that? How do we make it easier? Yeah. And then one of the, the things I think is key is this, uh, how do you do the initial onboarding for a customer who has never spoken with anybody? And then my friend, Sebastian, he was actually building a product in that space, uh, Userflow, which basically makes it possible to do onboarding guides, but also in general guides inside your application uh, without using code. Because the big thing here is when you're transitioning into this like very product-led model, you want to iterate on your solutions, right? You want to try things and see, does this work? Can we improve it? What can we do to improve it? And if you always have to involve developers when you do, that's a pain because developers have a lot of stuff on their roadmap and typically... You can say onboarding is maybe not the first priority. It might be like a feature the customers is asking for. And customers are not directly asking for onboarding. They're asking for other things. So I think these kind of no-code tools, which Userflow is, provides that possibility to for, for non-kind of engineers to build this stuff and iterate and, and try stuff. Uh, and, and I love that. And that's why I decided to, to join forces with Sebastian. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the point you make is, well, nobody's asking for onboarding, but it is like one of the most impactful, specifically when it comes to general retention. Like it's by far the biggest impact you can have is really nailing down your onboarding to make sure people are getting value effectively. The, the yeah. one thing is, well, I was just like from up to is thinking through how you see competition in the market. And I ask this because I think on the show, we've uh, interviewed uh, the CEO of Chameleon. We've interviewed someone from UserPilot. We've interviewed like uh, maybe from a couple other companies. And I also have had many other requests as well yeah. to join. So what is it you think that you have that's unique in the market that really differentiates yourself? First of all, I love competition. Competition only makes uh, us stronger. Exactly. It validates the market, but it also... It, it keeps you at your feet. So I think, yes, there's been a lot of solutions in, in this market, but it's also a big market. Everybody's moving, even like non-software companies are, are looking to build SaaS uh, solutions. Cobalt was actually playing into the same trend uh, that a lot of like traditional business is also building SaaS. So the SaaS market is just growing. So there's a lot of room for this. Uh, but having said that, I think where user flow is uh, powerful is really the product, right? I think we are we are coming in a bit later market. Uh, uh, Sebastian started building the product two years ago. Uh, but that also means we're thinking about it in a different way. It's not just a bunch of like Lego blocks that you're you're putting on, on top of each other. It's it's thought through from the beginning and it's a really strong product. Uh, our customers love the I think the the UX, the simplicity of using it and while still getting the sophistication it offers. So we have things like version control, environment control, localization, surveys, all the kind of sophistication that you expect, but yeah. delivered in a very user-friendly fashion. And that's really, we want to win on having the strongest product in the market. And that's the approach we're taking. Yeah, it's interesting yeah. that you say coming late to the game, but then having the ability to iterate and build the best product, I think. It definitely has some advantages coming in later, like seeing what everyone else has done, seeing the mistakes they've made. 
And then typically yeah. when companies are three, four years in, it's much harder to iterate and move fast as well because you've built a monolith and uh, you haven't been able to make the right decisions from the beginning. So having the yeah. advantage definitely helps you like get set off on the right foot. But then again, you also at some point need to be uh, pulling away from the pack and building something. I see we're running up on time, so I'm going to save time for the last two questions I ask everyone on the show. Let's imagine a hypothetical scenario now. You join a new company. Chenner retention is not doing great. The CEO comes to you and says, Espen, we need to turn things around. We have 90 days you're in charge what do you do oh that's a tough question all of this of course depends what is the business uh, doing who are the customers and so on i think one one smart thing we did in cobalt was really go out of course i think you should always go out and talk to your customers right and figure out why are they turning and if you don't know you should look at the data and figure it out and maybe you want to segment your data on uh, what customers are churning, which customers are churning and why. And sometimes you just make a decision that these customers are churning because they're not your ideal customer profile and that's it. And that's just, you have to accept that. And, yeah. and then you focus on your ideal customer profile and really double down on how do we uh, increase retention. And I think one of the great things we did at, at the Cobalt was we rebranded a bit the way we pitched all the way from sales to customer success and, and all throughout the journey. We, because if you go into a customer saying, yeah, you should buy a subscription, but they're really used to buying, just buying pen tests. But one thing trend that was happening in the industry was compliance was becoming a big thing. And you ne actually need to do annual pen testing. You need to have a pen test program, really. So yeah. we started pitching it like that, right? Like really talking about the pen test program and, and the fact that you need to do that, especially for compliance and really playing into that whole trend. But that was about understanding the market and understanding our ideal customer profile, which was SaaS businesses who had that need. And then we could all the way from sales to customer success, make a that model that retained them. Yeah, yeah very nice. And I, yeah. I really, I totally agree with having that point of, locking down who your ideal customer profile is and then doubling down and focusing on them. We talked about this quite a lot on the show. Definitely one of the interesting episodes was with Rahul Vohra, how he iterated his way to product market fit with Superhuman by really doubling down and figuring out who that ideal customer profile was based off of what a good fit customer looked like, what was the main value they were getting out of the product and it got them obviously to where they are today. Last question then, what's one thing you know about churn and retention today that you wish you knew when you got started with your career? Oh man, that's a really good question. I think churn and retention, what I would like to know. Yeah, I actually don't have a super good answer to that question. I think it's churn is just this, there, there are some customers who will churn no matter what, and you just have to accept that. And I think uh, you shouldn't chase them. I think a, a good thing to know is you cannot win them all, right? And, and that's again, going back to that ideal customer profile is I think in the early days of of uh, Cobol, you got really sad when somebody would churn or, or, but then over time, as you realize why they're churning and maybe they should never have been a customer, that that is a, a good knowledge to have. And, and there's, there are a, a thing, a, such a thing as a, a bad fit, right? There are customers that are bad fits to your business. And yeah. I don't think we, we always knew that in the beginning when we started Cobol. So yeah. That's one of the answers. I, I would have to think more about that one. Yeah, I think, I don't know where, I know, actually, I know where I saw it. it was, there's a course by Reforge, a retention engagement, Brian Belfour, actually, they just announced a really big funding round. And I think Andrew Chen, Brian Belfour, and Sean Klaus in the beginning did the first retention course. 
And they also talk about the anti-persona. And I loved like framing it in that mind. Who are your anti-personas? Who are not your customers? And it's almost as important to like highlight who they aren't as who they are and being really specific. So then it's easy for your team to understand, okay, who are we not building for? So like an example at the early days at Hotjar, we had decided, okay, this is not going to be a support tool where support teams would use it to watch user recordings and be able to help and support the team. So the anti-persona at Hotjar was like a support representative. It would not be a good user. So this really helped clarify and frame it for the team so they could say, okay, I'm not going to consider and rate as highly the feedback from these personas where if you're just only focusing on the ideal customer profile, you don't really give good barriers and good guidelines of what to do and what not to do in different circumstances. But yeah, I love that point you made. Yeah. Cool. It's been a pleasure chatting today, Aspen. Is there any final thoughts you want to leave the listeners with before we finish off for today? No, I think this has been uh, this has been amazing. I love chatting about this stuff. So yeah, if anybody out there want to chat about product-led growth or how you build uh, good customer success in a in an industry where when you move into an industry that's pro- predominantly led by consultancies, uh, I would be happy to chat with them. So don't hesitate to reach out. Um, but awesome. yeah, thanks for having me. It, yeah, it was thanks a so much for joining. It was great having you, and wish you best of luck now going into twenty twenty one. You too. Have a good yes. one. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with Churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you. And you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.